The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to Business is Boring. Artificial intelligence is being hailed as potentially as big a change to life as the internet, most likely a bigger change. Today it can seem like there are so many new tools, releases and news stories that the pace of change and the rate of change are moving so fast we don't know where to start. Well, how about starting at the beginning? One historian has been looking at what we can learn about the future of AI and work and life by looking at the history of technological change and of AI itself. Dr. Johnny Penn is a number one New York Times bestselling author, a University of Cambridge and Harvard scholar, a technologist, activist, historian and frequent speaker on the future of work and AI and how it will influence us and how we can influence it. He's part of the SparkLab Future State event and he joins us now by video call from Canada to talk about his work. Tenakwe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simon. I'm pleased to be speaking with you. Hey, so we mentioned, uh, what a treat to talk to you. Uh, we mentioned that you're a number one New York Times bestselling author, which is so cool. And really, interestingly, it's not for your area of work and your area of thought leadership. Can you tell us about the... Um, about that what you want to do before you die project that took you to the top of the best-selling author list and how that began and what it was? Sure, yeah. I, this is a question I get from my students often because they're very confused by my life. I've had an unusual life. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, a family friend passed away unexpectedly um, and my brother was the last person to see him. And it was very uh, hard for the two of us. Uh, and, you know, at a young age to, to suddenly have to think about life and death is is difficult. Um, and so my brother and I uh, started a conversation with two friends, um, one of whom I'd met breakdancing in high school. Uh, and the other was uh, the, the older brother of, of uh, my friend who I went to prom with. Uh, and the four of us had each gone through these different kind of traumatic experiences. Um, and we were kind of hungry f for more in life. And you, you know that feeling. Everybody has that feeling when you kind of feel detached from who you might be or, or what you might experience. And so our antidote was to write a list of a hundred things that we wanted to accomplish before we died. Uh, and we decided that for every single one we got finished and crossed off the list, we'd help a total stranger do something that they had always wanted to do. Uh, so, you know, meet someone at a, at a cafe, ask them, what do you want to do before you die? And they would tell us something and we would help them, you know, that day or the next day. That was our plan. And, you know, we, we had two weeks that we could get off of work collectively. We'd been saving up money for, for gas and things like this. And we hit the road thinking, okay, well, this will be our little, you know, summer project uh, before we have to go back to school. 
and it ended up uh, being what I it became my full time job uh, and it was an incredible experience and we actually managed to complete almost everything on the list with the exception of go to space uh, and a couple other big ones like that which I'm not saying won't happen but we thought these will take longer so we should wait uh, but we got the opportunity through this documenting our journey um, um, to, to make a television show to play basketball with uh, the president which at the time was uh, Obama uh, to deliver a baby and to help people that we'd never met do all sorts of extraordinary things, uh, including uh, reconnecting a, a street artist with his son, whom he hadn't seen in 17 years. Um, and I helped uh, a woman once find her mother's grave after losing her in Hurricane Katrina. And as you can imagine, this kind of unexpected um following or 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 understanding is maybe the better word because a lot of the people that would tune in for our our project online and, and on tv and elsewhere you know often were doing so because they felt as we did you know this kind of dissatisfaction or, or this want for something more and feeling that connection with all these people around the globe um really changed my life and it made me want to understand what I was seeing as, as a young man in the world. Uh, and that's what led me back into academia and eventually to the University of Cambridge. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a very satisfying, uh, a very uh, educational experience and has lots of funny stories uh, from along the way. And what did doing something like that, which is so remarkable, right? Because I'm sure, um, especially in the wake of, you know, re really traumatic and difficult life events, people think all kinds of things and don't necessarily put them into action. And so, yeah, what did what, what did putting that into action and the change that it, it, it made in your life? And also, what did that kind of point of connection with so many people over something that's so fantastical and so outside of normal life, you know, such big goals um, and, and people actually got behind them? What did, what did those things teach you? Many things. Uh, one is that to make a change, we used to say, all you need is 15 seconds of insane bravery. You don't need to be necessarily a different person than you are. You just need to be extremely brave for 15 seconds and say, I'm going to do this. And if you can do that, that's a very strong first step because you can at least envision it, you know, for that moment. And, and after that seed is planted um, in our experience with, with cultivation, it can grow and, and, and you can find yourself a different person years later from just believing uh, audaciously in, in something that others might tell you couldn't be possible, um, which is what we were told often in the early days. Another thing is to break with conformity. I think living in the era that we do with mass media now a norm, it's easy to inherit from the world expectations of what a good life is and what a good person is and what, you know, a good life is. And what we learned was that breaking from the pack uh, and and listening to those kind of voices that come to you, you know, uh, often in moments of, of hurt or grief um, can be a very powerful experience and something that I think um, cultures, civilizations prior to ours knew maybe better than we do because they weren't so saturated in um, cues, you know, in the media, on, on social media about who 
you know, you ought to be and how you ought to feel and, and the boxes one ought to kind of fit into. Um, yeah, we were very, very surprised pleasantly to see that breaking and trying something kind of crazy uh, made other people feel uh, like they could do it too. It's almost like confidence is contagious. Um, and it, it, that also, I will say, changed my life. And it's made me think a lot about this moment we're in historically with AI and the sort of ways we need to respond to it today. Yeah, tell me about that journey into academia and and to the University of Cambridge and studying the history of AI. What attracted you to that and what path did you go down? Sure. Well, it was funny, you know, we, we as a part of our television show, uh, which was on MTV in the United States, but aired uh, in 70 countries around the world, uh, we eventually had to move to Los Angeles and it was this kind of change from running this project out of our garage to years later, it being, you know, a, a TV production is a kind of unexpected turn into professionalism. Um, but being in LA and, and seeing kind of how the gears of media and industry uh, and the entertainment industry made me think about the sorts of things I'm describing about how we are conditioned, especially I think millennials, because, you know, we've grown up not only with social media, but um, with the kind of heyday of, you know, pop stardom uh, in the nineties and two thousands, um, which have all these baked in standards around beauty and, 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 you know, masculinity and femininity and, and a lot of the identity things that I think we're still trying to unpack as a generation, you know, years later, what we were told was normal versus what, what is unhealthy. <laughs> um, and if you want the, I'll, I'll, I'll mention the New York times made an interesting, uh, documentary about Britney Spears, um, that captures some of that. If, if this subject interests you, I'll, I'll point you that way. Cause it's, it's a nice little vignette on, on what I'm describing, but yeah, I was living in LA and, and working during the day on our project. And then at, in the evenings, I'd sneak off to UCLA's library and, and read and just take out books uh, as a guest and, and try to understand what I was kind of experiencing, putting, putting practice, practice into theory is how I kind of came to think about it. And having done this project at the time for almost a decade, uh, one of the things on the list was to get a college degree. We'd all dropped out of college to do, to pursue the project. And I thought, and I, I said to my brother and the others, guys, what if I just, you know, I'm only a couple credits away. What if I just went back and, and, and finished up and then I could cross this one off the list. And, and they were very supportive of that. Um, but in the process, I just I just caught the bug. Uh, I've always been a bit of a bookworm. Um, the project itself enticed me f for reasons that were deeper than just the fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun, uh, but you know, it was trying to make sense of the world I've been born into. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I eventually finished off my degree uh, in at the University of Cambridge. And then went back and then went back and then went back. And now I'm an assistant professor there teaching a master's on uh, the ethics of AI and society. Um, so it's it's been a very nourishing journey and, and has taught me a lot about uh, both the kind of perceptions of a good life and of uh, a good life relative to AI, but also the misperceptions, you know, the things we get wrong uh, and the hype that we can buy into and um I'm, I'm very grateful that I think uh, that I've been able to, to follow this course and, and, and do the academic work to kind of complement 
the wildness of the early days. And what a remarkable time to be specialising and, you know, going very deep on a topic like the ethics of AI <laughs> as, it, as it crests to become, you know, the biggest the biggest question in the world at the moment um, around ethics, the change in work, uh, and what's right in terms of pace and the boundaries of how this is studied and adopted. So <laughs> what a time that must be. What, yeah, what led you into AI especially? And, you know, were these themes things that you were thinking about as you got into it? Yeah. So this is, this is my, where my students are especially curious is how do you go from Los Angeles to the University of Cambridge? That seems like a very strange jump to make. Um, and I admit it is, it, it was actually, uh, sort of by accident. Um, I had studied the philosophy of time and formal logic. Uh, I well, I'd done history and then I got interested in philosophy um, and was interested in the history of computer science um, and was working in an area of kind of proto-AI on the history of cybernetics, um, which was equally ambitious to AI, but but just, you know, approached um, uh, knowledge and, 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 and reality really in a different way through different mechanisms. Um, and for my PhD, I was meant to look at an archive uh, on uh, the, the 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 work of John von Neumann, uh, who is uh, kind of was described as you know a mathematician's mathematician. He was uh, you know among the one of the greatest mathematical minds of the 20th century and, and really a polymath. He he, uh, he his contributions uh, uh, <laughs> to science and technology are long. Uh, including uh, helping to formulate the blueprint of the digital computer, but not exclusive to that. So um, I was very interested in this figure and 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 how he had kind of come to see or come to co-create so much of what we inhabit today. And then on the on the flight to Cambridge, uh, I stopped in at the archives that I was going to be studying, and the archivist there said, "Oh no, sorry, we've actually." We've we've had a bonfire. We've burned all of that those records, so those don't exist anymore. Um, and so I had to kind of in a hurry uh, choose an updated topic. And chronologically, AI was what came next. And John von Neumann had been very interested, but also very critical of AI. Interested in, as I said, similar dynamics, but through different language, um, not as anthropomorphic as as AI is. And so I pursued it and um, was surprised um, um, and then a, not just alarmed, but really surprised by how, how quickly AI took off. Because, you know, as a historian of the topic, people ask me often, wait a minute, you know, AI has a history. They, they think of it as kind of perpetually new. Uh, but the truth is, we, it is a kind of boom bust uh, area. It's known for having kind of AI springs and winters. Um, but what intrigued me about it now was the hope element about the kind of cachet, the emotional cachet that that uh, so many people carry, uh, that they that they want to draw from AI some expectation about what our future will um, allow, um, and that you know, having been around people, young people in particular, for a decade who were you know, managing their own hopes and dreams. It int intrigued me about that, the role that AI uh, in this era and previous eras um, was supposed to fulfill. Um, and so I, I just kind of fell in love with the topic and, 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 
put my nose into the books and emerged. It's been about a, a, over a decade since, and and it's been very satisfying to to be able to um, uh, talk with people about it because I have other colleagues in academia for whom, you know, the 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 phone won't always ring to say to to ask about the topics they're interested in. So I'm I'm pleased to be able to kind of. Uh, learn from other audiences and share with other audiences as as AI uh, just accelerates wider and wider in the world today. Looking at that birth of early days of AI, fascinating to see in your work the themes around it not being perhaps what many people would see it today, which is maybe very computer science-y and um, uh, you know, maybe not on the side of things of the what you've called the soft uh, sides of, um, of of study. So, yeah, tell us about that birth and 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 and, and the themes around, I guess, the um, economics and business and uh, management science and all of these ideas coming together into the first AI conference. The interesting thing about artificial intelligence is it draws from many different disciplines. Um, it's a very ambitious uh, uh, field, obviously trying to emulate what we consider, you know, one of the most complex uh, phenomena under the sun, the human brain. Uh, and it has leaned on different disciplines that are not always kind of credited uh, in the provenance, the kind of intellectual history of the field. And so to kind of summarize what what you the direction you're 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 heading there um i've asked for historians and practitioners to be mindful of the difference between a reliance on neural metaphors and social metaphors um so to give you an example from those early days uh, uh folks like um marvin minsky herbert simon um these John McCarthy, who coined the term AI, the, these kind of uh, quote unquote founding fathers, they were interested in emulating intelligence, but they weren't necessarily interested, as they're often assumed to have been, in um, uh, you know mimicking the brain with with fidelity. Uh, they they wanted to, to to render something that could be called intelligence, but it wouldn't have to function the way the brain functions. And uh, one of the challenges of our present moment is that uh, leap has has not really been interrogated. Uh, so I, I, I had the uh, opportunity to to live at the house uh, and get to know the family of Marvin Minsky after he passed away. Um, but uh, when I was at MIT, I, I was I just had the chance to stay with him and, and going through his old records and trying to understand his his thinking about what AI would become. And I remember his his widow, uh, Gloria Rudish, who's an, an amazing woman, saying, you know, Marvin would roll in his grave uh, today um, looking at where, where AI has come because uh, in, in his view, uh, you know, practitioners today would have given up on the original kind of send-off uh, ambition, which was to to uh, uh, theorize, give a kind of grand theory of intelligence. And because these are subtle differences, maybe I'll just say that I'm not um, implying in, in differentiating between, you know, trying to mimic the brain versus trying to mimic other things, that AI isn't um, 
even, you know, to be generous, intelligent, but that it's a certain type of intelligence. And if we want the most out of it, we have to be very clear about characterizing what type of intelligence it is. And what I argue in a lot of my work is that it resembles something that we might today call logistics, uh, which is a marvel. You know, modern logistics are incredibly complex, uh, incredibly lucrative to get right, uh, and also, uh, you know, a, a burden uh, in amidst, you know, the, the uh, climate crisis. And so if we are going to turn that, uh, you know, crank up uh, our reliance on uh, kind of logistical thinking, uh, we have to be mindful of, of uh, in, in my view, of preserving certain spaces that, that need not be exposed to that. So what am I talking about? What is this? How does this trickle down to real life? Um, and we, we can go into this later. It's something I will be actually bringing to New Zealand to talk about some new work on an area I'm calling rest engineering. Um, but the idea is essentially, let's, let's look at modern dating. Uh, increasingly, for, for young people, uh, it is harder and harder to not use a dating app. Um, the experience of meeting a life partner is, is designed to be mediated uh, by technology. And that's a gift. I met my partner uh, through a dating app. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we not have them. But I am keen to preserve, as I've said, uh, alternatives uh, and to have a plurality of approaches and to dignify, in a sense, uh, unsophisticated alternatives. And uh, I'm not just advocating this. I'm actually uh, witnessing it in the world today uh, with um, there's a new trend um, where uh you can buy a, a teal ring, a teal colored ring, and uh, it will uh, signify to people that you are single. It's called the pair ring. I'm not paid by these people, uh, but they call it the world's biggest social experiment uh, because it's it's meant to be a very simple alternative to what could otherwise be construed or what I would argue is often over-engineering. We don't need things to be as complex as um, these uh, talented developers and engineers and and kind of hungry tech companies might suggest they ought to be. Um, and yeah, that's a it's a complex bridge to go from just the, the neural metaphor to what I'm describing is the kind of social routines that we uh, uh, practice every day. But a lot of it comes down to authority. Uh, from where does do do AI practitioners derive their authority? Um, and I'll, I'll just end by saying uh, practitioners in AI have been kind of notoriously disinterested in their own history. Uh, they've been challenged many times for not taking pride in the provenance of their ideas and calls today about, you know, uh, the, the rather, rather, you know, short proximity between machine learning and uh, history of eugenics uh, make this a very troubling uh, gap. Um, so I'm one of many trying to say, well, hold on, what if we did this differently? Or what, what if, what if uh, we asked uh, practitioners to kind of uh, participate in setting the limits and not just the um, peaks of their, um, of their tools? Uh, yeah. Yeah, love it. And we'll be back in a moment with Dr. Johnny Penn to talk about how we might be thinking about setting limits on AI, the future of work, and what's next.
Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Hokimai Ano and welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're talking to Dr. Johnny Penn. Hey, so, you know, we've, we're talking a bit about the, the history of AI and where we are today. And really interesting to he, hear you say that, you know, it's built to be uh, this amazing thing in the world of logistics. Can you go into that a little bit more? Like, what is, uh, you, you, you know, I've seen AI referred to as like the world's best autocomplete. Um, and that's often where people leave it. But it doesn't seem like a very satisfying answer. Like, what is uh, AI in, in, in your view? What's the best way for us to describe it? Yeah, the best way, I mean, it's it's a moving target, famously. Marvin Minsky called AI a suitcase word because different people, different communities pack it full with different meaning. And people joke that, you know, machine learning is written in Python, the programming language, and AI is written in PowerPoint. <laughs> um, that it, in some sense, AI is the kind of margin above the technical capacity uh, that is rhetorical and and meant to do some kind of work around world building. Uh, you know, that that AI is is figurative, it's literary, it's, it's actually... Uh, not describing a, a strict uh, and kind of discrete set of, of uh, technical practices. Um, so if that sounds complex, another way to say it is AI is an umbrella uh, for uh, a group of sister sciences interested in mimicking, uh, but only to the extent that it's useful, uh, human cognition. And the description of, of some of these techniques, particularly in the kind of learning end, so machine learning, deep learning, um, uh, these, these subfields of AI, um, they're interested in mimicking, you know, highly rationalized decisions. And the trouble is, um, the reason that this is uh, problematic uh, to kind of revisit some of what I was saying before is that we've found that, you know, human social practices are what some call a wicked problem. They don't actually reduce neatly to uh, kind of standardized uh, practices. They are contradictory. Humans are emotional. Uh, the, the idea that, that, that we can kind of predict the future uh, has been foiled time and time again. And so uh, one of the things I'm kind of uh, um, advancing in my own work now is trying to think about AI 
not in a maximalist way in which it is as as every newspaper headline reads you know a, a tool that would be ubiquitous everywhere but much more of a kind of cultivated approach of w- where we know it will be really productive let's say in the sciences uh, and where it may be degenerative such as in the criminal justice system where the idea of sharpening tools that we know empirically are already disenfranchising uh, marginalized people sharpening those tools uh, and 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 um, kind of boosting them with large-scale surveillance seems like an idea that is both uh, unfair to those communities but ultimately will also you know come back to bite those who who welcome them because uh, we see as well historically that um, you know latent surveillance uh, uh, infrastructure can be uh, 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 misused so a famous example is when the Nazis arrived into uh, Holland and were able to use what was at the time, you know, some of the best bureaucratic governance um, in the world, but but in different hands was used against the people uh, of that state and uh, to to locate, you know, Jewish communities, etc. And I think that what is getting a lot of um, AI people worried today is okay, uh, you know, different people have different thoughts about big tech and and the powers you know being centralized in the hands of corporations but what if it got worse you know how do we set up um, measures of accountability so that if someone else took the reins uh, they wouldn't abuse this new power uh, to do people harm and it's a really it's a really big question it really is and that's why i i personally want to look to history and and and, and do look to history for precedence about uh, what type of authorities uh, or authority matter um, and the last thing i'll say to go back to the start about uh, definitions is the difference or one way that's very one important aspect of AI is to think about it. And this comes up in the in the, the master's program that I'm teaching um, in Cambridge is to think about it as a socio-technical uh, uh, kind of um, school of thought. So it's not just technological. It is socio-technological. It involves people inevitably, uh, because even if uh, those people are just maintaining an AI system or, you know, selecting uh, which output from an AI system to action upon, if it's a mortgage application or a job application, there will always be humans in the loop. And therefore, you need to kind of understand human beings in addition to understanding the technical capabilities of these systems if you want to make productive use of them. Yeah. And that's so interesting, that idea that you know, pattern matching um, can be very good if it's finding something, you know, a new protein in the sciences. But pattern matching, if it's based off existing social inequities or uh, poor frameworks or stereotypes, ends up being a very dangerous tool. What, what, what? How would you describe the moment that we're in at the moment? Because when we're talking about, you know, it's maybe very important to think about how we put limits on these things and think about the social and human element in it. At the same time, we've got these very high profile um, letters coming out from people involved um, in the study and the field asking for a pause as things are moving so fast. They think it's time to, 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 to pause and think about how we set these limits. What, 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 what do you think about this moment? Is a pause required? Is it is it too late, as others are saying? 
Um, are you confident we will be able to set some limits uh, on, on these things? So my approach to this is a bit unconventional, um, and I'm 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 very supportive in different ways of. There are various kind of constituencies around AI that that um, debate um, the character of the limits. Um, as you said, there's been this recent letter signed by Elon Musk and others saying, let's wait six months. That has been lampooned by some communities by saying, you know, what an arbitrary response. Um, you know, are, is this, is, are there some self-serving, is there some self-serving aspect of this where uh, pausing six months will give someone like Elon, you know, the time he needs for his new AI company to catch up, knowing that he was an early mover in OpenAI that, that's just released ChatGPT. Um, so that that's a contentious uh, debate. Others uh, in the kind of ethics of AI, loosely, uh, that term is its own umbrella term, um, argue that, you know, if, if that letter calling for a pause was um, as kind of genuine as it might seem, they would be represented because actually a lot of the, the really um, heavy lifting around the societal impacts of AI is done by uh, scholars like Sophia Noble, Ruha Benjamin, others that, to my knowledge, didn't sign the letter because they didn't see their work represented in it. Uh, and, you know, it, it's no longer kind of the early... 2010s when when some of that was new it's been around long enough now that it's starting to feel like um, the community that signed the the letter are just kind of ignoring um, some of the really uh, kind of scholarly work that is coming out around the social implications of AI but um, th th for me um, I think the idea of a pause is something that I have thought about for a long time but I characterize it differently, uh, such that it, so that it's not arbitrary. And I'll, I'll describe it this way. If you grew up playing music, you know that, uh, the pleasure of music is that it's a mix of notes and rests. Uh, you need that because that design creates music. Otherwise it would just be cacophony, but you have to deliberately pause. You have to introduce structural pauses of different lengths, uh, in order to have, um, uh, music. And I use this in my own work as a metaphor um, for uh, restraint, modes of restraint uh, that are kind of kaleidoscopic, because rather than one big pause, we may come to see that, as I've mentioned, there are certain areas and certain ways of using AI that even if you know, they could be seen as, as scientifically feasible, which often they aren't, and I'll give you an example in a minute, um, it's just not worth the effort. Um, uh, so to go back to the idea of kind of predicting crime, this idea abuses the source of crime. Why do people turn to crime? Uh, and so it's sort of a paradigmatic um, uh, shift to say, rather than, than, than um, attempting to, to predict the future, which I should underline too, AI has never been able to do. These things are described as predictions only after the data is collected and kind of um, looking backwards, then it was just, then it's described as a, as a prediction or as like prophecy. It is not prophesizing anything. It's more a matter, these systems are used to kind of forecast. Uh, but the point I'm making is that they forecast uh, in relation to data that can be biased, 
So you can think of the age-old adage in computer science of garbage in, garbage out, um, and it may predict, quote-unquote, predict crime in a neighborhood that's been greatly under-resourced uh, by communities that have been discriminated against. And if, if, if those, you know, if that historic uh, story of oppression is, is cast as kind of scientific uh, through the guise of AI, that's a really problematic thing. And so I'm and person, personally uh, uh, in favor of restraint, um, but not this kind of arbitrary pause, more a, a kind of collective agreement about where to use these tools and where to very deliberately not use these tools. Uh, and as a, to close, I'll give you a funny example. I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian and, and British, and in Canada, um, there was a, a controversy, controversy, I understand, about uh, introducing drones uh, uh, to surveil uh, forest uh, parkland. And the argument by the government was, well, if, if people get lost, this, this will help. And the Canadian go, or Canadians pushed back and said, well, we go to the forest to get lost. Um, you know, we go there to escape surveillance. And okay, sure, if you need it in an emergency, but the point is, you know, we risk turning the whole world into a laboratory and turning people and other species and life on Earth into kind of laboratory subjects if we succumb to the urge to blanket the world in AI. And so, yeah, I, I, I use the idea of notes and rests to bring some gradient, uh, to bring some subtlety and some kind of uh, confidence also to the idea of saying, not there. We, 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 we don't need to do it there. Yeah, I, I love that nuance, the idea that, you know, maybe different bits of the orchestra are still playing while yes, <laughs> other yeah, bits are taking yeah, yeah. a break as well. <laughs> uh, where, it's, where, where, there, where there are more kind of like, um, you know, uncomplicated goods to be chased down. The other thing I think is interesting in all of this, which I've seen you, you speak about, is that there's always a panic about new technology, right? Yeah. And the world's always ending, but things always seem to be getting, um, you, you know, there's, there's, there's never been a better time to be alive on pretty much any social or health measure that you can um, hope for, right? Or access to education or freedom of travel for, you know, a, a large number of people in the world. And so, so you know, how, how do you put this in context of those kind of things? Like um, when you see people saying this is going to be as big as the invention of fire for civilization, um, is that something that we, we should be paying um, attention to? Uh, is uh, Should we be worried? <laughs> is, is this likely to be okay? Do, can we know? Yeah. So I, I come at this again as a historian and I, I think about it over decades and centuries as opposed to just the near term. And my orientation is um, you know, I'm highly critical of AI, but I, I'm highly critical because I think that's the best route through. Um, because one of the learnings that we've had, especially from recent developments, is that competition is a very strong thing, uh, a strong uh, tool to work with. So if you look at uh, GAN, Standard Adversarial Networks, which helped um, bring about 
what we see today with, you know, you, you might have caught news like you, you, the website, this person does not exist, uh, which just generates a, an entire, a a, what looks like it looks to be a real person, but is entirely algorithmically generated. And that was done. I won't go into the, the technical uh, uh, aspects, but is, is done basically by pitting two models against each other uh, to uh, one trying to fool the other uh, and, and just having them uh, action upon this kind of ability to fool one another millions or billions of times and it it it's worked you know remarkably and so in answer to your question i think we should be as as hard on ai as possible now because the extra competition uh will will bring about the best use cases um and you know I'll, I'll be specific the 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 person that is equated ai um to uh, the invention of fire was the CEO of Google, uh, you know, who has a lot to gain um, from that uh, uh, kind of mythology. And it's not necessarily disingenuous because a lot of that community really believes uh, that 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 is true. Uh, the trouble is that there are certain things that the, the tech community aren't good at, um, I would argue. Um, I, I think that they're very good at infrastructure, but not as good. And this is a controversial claim, but it, it's in the spirit of competition and, 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 you know, debate of ideas, I think is worth putting out there. Not as strong on, on cultivating culture. That culture is actually something that is is that others are better at than the tech community. Um, but if we allow, uh, you know, all culture to be ported through digital uh, media or platforms, YouTube, et cetera, now chat GPT and other kind of large language models, we risk diminishing the richness of life. Um, and this is where, to, to go back to what I was saying at the very start of this question about, um, you know, is this the best time to be alive, question mark. I think it is and it isn't. Um, the notion of progress uh, is is actually relatively new. Uh, people forget um, the notion of linear time is relatively new, and in my view, um, we are kind of quick to condescend. We in the West, uh, and especially in, in communities of technologists, quick to condescend prior uh, uh, civilizations for being lesser, you know, because they're different uh, and so we don't understand them. Uh, the, the famous example here is kind of pre historical people. What does that mean? Well, it, it means that their civilizations weren't, you know, by and large rooted around the invention of the written word. Um, the irony is that those kind of quote unquote uh, prehistorical people uh, outlasted us. You know, if we continue at the current trajectories with the climate change, with climate change, it, we, we may have uh, those those who, uh, looking back on this era, may have a very different idea of the kind of sophistication of the of the thinking that came out of the Enlightenment, because um, to 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 go back to my metaphor before of the life or the world as a laboratory, this idea that kind of hyper rational thinking ought to be dignified as as the kind of um, the the ultimate form of thought really diminishes a lot of other human capacities that I think we're going to need to rely on um, as the world gets more unstable, uh, 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 both uh, geopolitically and uh, uh, in, in terms of climate um, and biodiversity over the, the coming decades and centuries. So I agree that we live in an era of, of tremendous promise. Um, but in short, I, I think we have to learn from our ancestors and incorporate um, the best of the past 
into our thinking and not fetishize the future and fetishize the possibility of getting to a good life um, while also diminishing our lives now. And you can probably start to see how some of that thinking is informed by my previous life doing the, the project about what do you want to do before you die? Because I would meet a lot of people who would mortgage their present moment to get to some future imagined state where they were happy. You know, and I thought they, they would tell me, oh, yeah, I'm just I'm just doing this and then I'll, I'll be happy down the road. And they wouldn't say it because they believed it. They, they almost just needed to confess it to get it out. And I, I worry that we're sort of doing the same thing now where we're putting so much hope into AI to solve really deep systemic structural problems, historical problems um, that we forget that there are other ways, simpler ways to go about kind of cultivating a good life together. And that doesn't mean Luddism. It doesn't mean we just cut off AI, but it means we're kind of um, prioritizing the plurality of ways of being and thinking that we have seen, you know, generate culture and civilization in the past. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think it's um, especially important, right, as we move into a time where, you know, if you play around with the image generation, the video generation, the um, the, the chat, uh, GPT-type chatbot integrations, and see what can be produced now so, so easily and so quickly. I feel like there's going to be such a wave of artificial things breaking over us. So many images, so much, uh, so, mm -hmm. so much, you know, fake, fake photography and video and so much text that what's real is going to become kind of more important in amongst all of this, uh, perhaps. And yeah, so, so, so it, 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 it does feel like a, a time where so much is is kind of on the the edge of changing but the things that people actually really care about and the things that really connect people to other people that they're not going to change right well may i pose a question to you absolutely i i'd be curious to know because I, I this is a question that's come to me and I, I struggle with how much digital is enough yeah that's interesting you know, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and in what context there, like in work and life and, and boundaries? In, in a way, yeah. I think, I mean, I think it, it obviously puts one, put one, puts one back on their heels. It same happens to me because it does matter on the context. But I think it's the, it, to me, it's, it's the question underlying a lot of contemporary debate. Um, so if you look at workplaces, they're little microcosms of a lot of the themes we've covered today about this tension between productivity, efficiency, and, you know, wellness, mental health, uh, career and work satisfaction, uh, you know, retaining workers that join uh, your business and, and, and whom you want to succeed. There's, there's delicate decisions to be made about, you know, let's say uh, with Microsoft products, you know, managing now, you can see how often someone was at their computer, how long they had a certain app open, um, how long the keystroke was sitting empty. Uh, this, this, these, these deeply sort of intrusive modes of surveillance that, you know, individually people may feel a bit disempowered to push back on because how are you, how are you supposed to? And, there's a there's an element of creep where we kind of sleepwalk into to having these these tools be normalized, um, unless 
uh, I, I think there's what I'm hoping is to, to see this kind of conversation coalesce into something that in the West we might think of as equivalent to vegetarianism. You know, the decision some people make just not to eat meat because they'd prefer not to. They're happier not doing that. And it, it doesn't uh, turn the world upside down. In fact, it's got great, um, you know, um, carry on effects around the climate and things like that. But around technology, we're still often stuck in this kind of binary, this this false binary where suggesting restraint, unless you're, you know, among the, the kind of uh, relatively small community of folks that really care about AI and its, its limits, <laughs> suggesting restraint can often be kind of knee-jerk reaction treated as Luddism. Um, and so to give you an example, I'm, I'm, I've just written a paper for a talk at Yale about decomputerization and, and that the, that, which is in, in short, you know, the decision not to use a computer in a certain social setting. And the funny thing is that word isn't in the dictionary. If you put it into to Gmail or, or Microsoft Word, it'll have a little red squiggly line underneath it. Um, and I think what I'm beginning to kind of sense here is that it's it's almost taboo to suggest that the future wouldn't be highly digital or, or highly technological. Um, and the challenge is this is not entirely for us to decide because the situation we're in, in the climate crisis is going to compel some very difficult choices as we've already seen in the last five years with the pandemic and the kind of turn uh, against globalization um, towards different modes of production, different supply chain um, uh, arrangements, uh, and weather events that are highly dramatic. Uh, and so, you know, from that view, um, digital infrastructure may not actually be as resilient as we need. Uh, and I have a student right now writing about the history of Y2K as a as a as an eerie kind of uh, uh, echo uh, from the past of of when businesses and governments stopped to think about how deeply dependent they were on their digital systems. And again, it's not it doesn't need to be a knee jerk like this is an area I want to breathe um, nuance into because it's not just about shutting down all the machines, but it is about recognizing the kind of um, the ecosystem we fit within and how these uh, tools such as AI uh, fit within that because as you may have seen in the news, you know, AI, the, the AI sector as a whole is, is tantamount now in terms of its carbon emissions to the airline industry. And we're just getting started. So, you know, uh, to think, I, I fear, I guess, at some level that, that tech and, and climate are on this kind of collision course. Um, and as a result, you might see, you know, uh, a kind of new modes of solidarity from the tech industry, uh, the climate justice movement, even maybe the racial justice movement uh, uh, to uh, set some meaningful limits such that we can get the best out of AI without kind of spilling into the, the worst of it, too. Ah, that's magic. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing some of your thinking today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. That's Dr. Johnny Benn. Uh, a, a scholar, best-selling author and speaker at the Future State event. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So thank you to Dr. Johnny Penn, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Te Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohora.
from the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.